This is Robert M. Price, and I'm glad you're joining us on Apostasy Now. Because I'm very much a skeptic. More, I'm, I'm more of a skeptic than I am an atheist. I mean, atheist is a conclusion based on my skepticism. You'll have to come like a little child to the foot of the cross. That attitude is what is responsible for the rise of atheism. That's not what Islam is all about. Islam is peace. What is the penalty for leaving the Muslim faith? With a death penalty. Thank you. This is apostasy now. For people to get the information correct before they start yap, yap, yapping. Get ready to root for the bad guys. Because with the evidence, the only evidence... Apostasy Now. This episode, I was blown away by the generosity of Dr. Robert M. Price, who agreed to be on the show. You're going to be impressed, to say the least, by his level of knowledge of the Bible and his passion for evidence-based history. He's going to challenge a lot of your preconceived notions, and I hope this will be a first step towards a lot of the concepts he tries to put forward, and an introduction if you don't already know him, or a better knowledge of this man and the work that he is continuing to do. I see him as a valuable resource, and I hope more people are going to take advantage of what he has to offer, which is to expand your knowledge in areas that constantly come into contact with other people's beliefs and disbeliefs. In addition to that, Smashlock is back this week. I always enjoy having him running shotgun. He's got some interesting questions as well. And coming up next, I couldn't help but make a small little homage to this man's legacy, which by uh, the way I talk, I'm sure you can tell I'm a fan. So if you don't like it, skip ahead six minutes. But otherwise, enjoy the tune. Dr. Price is a pretty unique uh, unique guy with some unique arguments. I got about 60 pages of notes. I have actually printed out a bio of his, uh, but he'd written so many books, it was like 10 pages long. I am interested in a question, I must examine the issues for myself. I re- 
reject, for example, Velikovsky's astronomy, not because the Academy sneers at it, which I guess they do, but because his methodology seems flawed to me as I understand it. And forgive me, but so does Dr. Craig's. First, let me call attention to two fundamental axioms in Dr. Craig's work. The first is what strikes me as a kind of double truth model. The second is the old red herring attempt to evade the principle of historical analogy by means of the claim that critics reject miracle stories only because they espouse philosophical naturalism. The second follows from the first, and both commit the fallacy of ad hominem argumentation even while projecting it onto the opponent. Nor is naturalism an issue when the historian employs the principle of analogy. As F.H. Bradley showed in the presuppositions of critical history, no historical inference is possible unless the historian assumes a basic analogy of past experience with present experience. If we do not grant this, nothing will seem amiss in believing stories that A turned into a werewolf or B changed lead into gold. Hey, just because we don't see it happening today doesn't prove it never did. One could just as easily accept the historicity of Jack and the Beanstalk on the same basis as long as one's sole criterion for historical plausibility is anything goes. If there are ancient parallel legends about other saviors and sages rising from death or ascending into heaven, but there is no present day instance, is the historian to be maligned as a narrow dogmatist or a moral coward refusing to repent? He judges the story of Jesus' resurrection as probably a legend too. The historical axiom of analogy does not dogmatize. Critical historians are not engaging in metaphysics and epistemology uh, as if they could hop into a time machine and pontificate, A didn't happen, B did. Again, Dr. Craig and his brethren are just projecting. It is they and not critical historians who want to be able to point to sure results. Imagine a creed. If thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and believe in thy heart that God has probably raised him from the dead, thou shalt most likely be saved. Now, who's the joke on there? Historians don't have creeds. They frame hypotheses. Sure, you can find some high-bound prop, some small-minded, insecure windbag who will not budge from a pet theory because he has too much personally invested in it. But you have no trouble recognizing such a person as a hack, a fake, a bad historian who ought to know better, Holocaust deniers, for example. The last thing you do is to emulate such behavior and make it into an operating principle. But apologists do. Again, it's projection. A soft answer turneth away wrath. That is a maxim I live by. I don't want any trouble. If I have to pipe up and dispute about something or protest about something, well, it, it will mean all the more if I usually don't get upset. When I do, you'll know it means something. I've, I've learned over the decades to have a sensitivity. It's like the uh, another great Bible passage, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. 
I don't want to uh, make people feel uh, bad or angry or condemned, uh, so I try to speak positively and to uh, to uh, be charitable in speech. And uh, so I, to me, that is very important as a guide for life. I told my guys at the Institute that I, I shouldn't be debating you. I should be teaching a, a course on you. It's uh, it's great to talk to you. Oh, you too. Uh, uh, how have you been? How have your holidays been? Oh, loads of fun. Uh, busy uh, with uh, reading and writing, but also rapping. Uh, loads of presents. It's going to be fun. Uh, I hope yours are uh, merry and uh, delightful. Uh, overall, they've been good. I We had a death in the family, actually. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah, he, he was my uncle, and I was just kind of getting to know him, but... Uh, you know, at least uh, at least at the end, he knew he was loved and things like that. So that's that's powerful. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's great. Wow. Jeez, what did he die of? He died of a heart attack. I guess mm-hmm. it was so sudden. The doctor thinks he didn't even know what had happened. Wow. Hmm. Uh, well, he had smoked his whole life, and he had been a heavy drinker for most of his life. And uh, but you know, he was in at the doctor's the night before, uh, the day before, and the doctor told him that he didn't think anything was wrong. Whoo, boy. Oh, yeah. Wow. Pleasure mm. to meet you, by the way, sir. My name is uh, Chris, but I go by Smashlock. I'm uh, Mr. Dragon's Beard Partner in Crime. Ha-ha. <laughs> well, good to meet you. <laughs> you too. So, uh, I've been following you for some time. Um, you have your regular show, uh, The Bible Geek. Mm. And uh, it's, uh, you know, the first really started following you with the human Bible. It was a little bit more, um, I think, geared towards new listeners. That's and, right. Yeah, and the, the, human, Bi- uh, the human Bible was uh, my way of getting used to your sense of humor. Uh, <laughs> uh, um, yeah, but I listened to the other show uh, regularly. I was sorry to hear the human Bible wouldn't be, uh, I was having some kind of trouble. Yeah, uh, there was, a, I think, a decline in giving to uh, the parent group, the Center for Inquiry, after some kind of disastrous blow-up in a conference they had about uh, the role of women in free thought. Uh, somebody, I mean, it's easy not to be uh, orthodox enough of a feminist for some people to start scream and screaming, and somebody made some remark that uh, caused a huge furor. Luckily, I had nothing to do with it and still don't really know what happened and don't want to, but they, uh, they, their support shrank, and uh, so they decided they they couldn't uh, keep the thing going but um since i was really handling most of the the thing with and and uh, i figured i could easily just switch it over to the the geniuses that uh, put out the the bible geek i could just keep doing that too and so i did a bunch of them and uh, that they're finally i think airing and as soon as they're done i'm going to start up with more uh, new ones of the human bible as well oh awesome I guess, uh, you know, the, the thing that really drew me to listening to you uh, is not just you have an incredible uh, wealth of knowledge on the topic, like in the entire field. Listening to answer questions like off off the cuff, um, that's that's impressive. I think uh, most people only get to hear that if they go to like a university and they really get to know a professor. Uh, that's quite a service you're providing to people. Uh, I'm I'm thrilled whenever I hear somebody is actually getting something out of it. It's it's enormous fun for me to do. Oh, good. Yeah. Well, on behalf of uh, 
<laughs> on behalf of myself and many others, thank you. I, that's, like I say, uh, that's not something you get online very, it's not an everyday thing. I'm kind of forming, as I listen to you, I'll, I'll not always understand what you're talking about at the time. Some things are pretty specific, but I'll get like a general sense. And then when I come back around and the topic is discussed in another light, then it slowly starts to add up to a more concrete understanding as they accumulate. Well, that's always been my experience reading different scholars, uh, that some of them will take certain uh, axioms in the field and certain research results for granted. And uh, I don't really feel at ease until I hear something else, a comment on their work or, or some other elucidation, like you say. And I feel like I have to really go back and reconstruct it so I know what they think and why and what led them to it, or or I don't have any right to an opinion. So that is a, I think to even recognize that you're really uh, right on the right track, and I commend you for it. There's a couple of things that I think that it would benefit a lot of people to understand a little better that I think that you're very good at clearing up, and one of them is the skeptical approach. Probably not just to biblical history and biblical text, but that's your specific field that you you talk to people about. Um, so I was wondering, before we get to that, though, maybe you could tell us just a general idea of along the process of how you got there, where you started with your interest in the Bible and its history, and how it kind of slowly morphed into where it is now. Well, it's a pretty simple uh, process biographically and logically. I got converted to fundamentalism, born-again Christianity, when I was uh, about 10. Uh, started going to a conservative Baptist association church in New Jersey, and uh, that uh, really uh, took root, and I began reading the Bible devotionally. I could make something out of some of it, but uh, I, I was eager to understand it better and better. And uh, it wasn't long before I learned about apologetics, how uh, I saw some kind of brief film in a youth group, I think, about uh, someone showing the uh, dates of the Gospels and uh, how close they were to the events. And so it all had to be true. And I thought, wow, I mean, I never really even thought of that. I just figured, yeah, that's what they say in church and it must be true. But to think that there's some objective evidence and you could demonstrate it, wow. Uh, and so I began to read books about that and to uh, shore up my faith. But a very few years later, I began to see uh, big holes in the reasoning and in the evidential basis for it and uh, wound up much more skeptical and I guess I was, uh, I kind of got to the the viewpoint that Bart Ehrman, for instance, would occupy now, uh, not believing in the uh, the perfection, the inerrancy, the accuracy of the Bible, um, understanding that belief in God was a whole different matter, more of a philosophical question that uh, didn't really depend on the Bible and vice versa. And... Um, being an agnostic as to whether there was any supernatural or not, but I was sympathetic toward religion and theology, more and more liberal theology. I found that uh, the uh, grasp I thought I had of that was the product of uh, one-sided presentation by evangelicals. And once I read these people for myself, I realized there was a lot more to them. Well, um, 
in as the years went by and I got degrees in theology and New Testament and so on, I realized there's just such a an embarrassment of riches, uh, so many interesting possibilities, but no way to prove any of them that I guess, uh, and and then I began to look into deconstructive philosophy and things, and I just thought it's no longer really even a question of being able to believe in these unseen things. I'm not even sure if that's meaningful anymore, but I'm already getting lost in the weeds here. But the main thing was that fundamentalism instilled in me a an insatiable curiosity to understand the Bible better, and eventually I understood it well enough not to believe in it anymore, but to continue my interest in it in the same way a classicist is interested in the Iliad and the Odyssey. It doesn't occur to him he ought to believe in Zeus or Achilles, uh, but it's endlessly fascinating. My uh, origins are evangelical as well. It's uh, Mm. evangelical Mennonite, but uh, Mm -hmm. modern Mennonite. And I had somewhat of the same approach of how, how my evolution went. It went uh, from wanting to know more because I was devout. And then you start uh, learning some things that make you uncomfortable. Mm. You know, you have to make that choice. Am I going to be true to what I'm learning and keep carrying on in an honest way? Or am I going to, uh, you know, listen to the, the excuses, I guess, that, that are more convenient or, or more soothing? And it's hard to persuade yourself you ought to do that because... All of the stuff we learn about uh, the Reformation and uh, the theological debates and that you've got to uh, give Scripture primacy and not fudge it, well, when when Christianity itself is at stake on the, in the same court, uh, it's hard to suddenly shift gears and say, well, I don't really care that much what the evidence says. I want to stick with the party line. I mean, that's the very thing you learn that Christianity and biblical studies progressed by not doing. And and so it's tough to suddenly uh, to uh, suddenly just suppress your questions. I think there's also for me anyways, there was also this sense of internal loyalty um, and it's actually been very illuminating for allowing me to understand a lot of things you're saying about how how little we can tell about um, texts that we don't have. And people assume that those texts must have been such and such or at such and such a time um, because they give kind of a special, I don't know, a special honesty and devotion to people at an earlier time within the faith than we would have now. Like if you would say that about someone, say, who's running a newspaper, a lot of people would doubt you. Oh, well, what's the evidence? How do we know this Mm. newspaper knows what? And you're like, well, how about the Bible? We didn't know for a hundred years what was going on with these people here, and we're kind of assuming based on this. Uh, but what external evidence supports any of that? So there's always an interesting kind of uh, stirring the stew type of situation. What we know, what we don't know. Yeah, that separates the dogmatist from the historian. Uh, the uh, the historian, I- at least ideally, does not have a vested interest in believing a certain version of events. Uh, you're always hoping more evidence will uh, turn up archaeologically or new documents or whatever. And if they do, you're going to be happy to go wherever they lead. You, you're not in terror that they're going to debunk your favorite theory about, uh, you know, why we won World War Two or something. Uh, you want to know what happened, not that something in particular did. But the dogmatist uh, doesn't have that uh, luxury. He's tied to a view that that must be true. And if new evidence indicates otherwise, well, to hell with the evidence. 
Now, I've heard you talk briefly about it before. Um, there are there are believers, so like you say, people who are into the dogma. Uh, but then there are people who just seem extremely traditional or traditionalists. What do you find is the key difference that takes someone who says they don't believe in the faith, but they still seem to hold on to almost essentially the same types of beliefs when it comes to the text or the history of it? I tend to think that is biographical inertia uh, that uh, there – if I can use uh, – I, I hate to do this uh, for fear I will sound like I'm attacking him, but somebody like Bart Ehrman, for instance, is uh, not a believer anymore. He's an agnostic and practically an atheist. What led him to that? Well, it wasn't New Testament criticism. It wasn't the issue of how historical are the Gospels and so on. It was the philosophical issue of theodicy. He just didn't find it was plausible to believe in a providential, loving, righteous God, given the way the world is, and I agree with him. Uh, but uh, because of that, I, I wonder if he just decided to rest where he was in a kind of moderately critical approach to uh, to biblical criticism. I mean, I can't read the guy's mind, and of course his opinions are valid or invalid independent of how he may have arrived at them. But when you don't quite understand why someone takes the opinion they do based on the, the strengths of the, of the theory or, or of their reasoning, you do begin to wonder if it's something like just a biographical inertia thing that what they're used to believing or or one other thing uh, like peter berger describes plausibility structures i know uh, from his writings uh, bart ehrman is it's very important for him to be within the mainstream consensus of scholarship as if that is a guarantee that certain opinions are correct where it's very clear to me that just doesn't matter. That's the, the whole history of science is a matter of consensus is being overturned. But in the meantime, it's hard to, as they say, think out of the box. But that means that everything attributed to Jesus must have served the purposes of somebody in the early church, and therefore it all goes by the boards. None of it jumps the hurdle of dissimilarity, because it's Christians saying it. Uh, George Eldon Ladd used to say, now Jesus must have called himself the Son of Man because nobody calls him that in the epistles. Why not if it was a Christian thing? Hey, George, who do you think wrote the Gospels? Oh boy. Um, uh, so he's right. This is designed to, uh, to clear the deck to see what's left. It's like Cartesian doubt. Let's get rid of all the insecure assertions and, and propositions so we can start over uh, from a firm foundation. Same thing here, only uh, for reasons that Bard and most scholars never happen to notice, nothing jumps the hurdles. Nothing passes the test. I don't know why that's so tough to understand, but uh, he's just uh, embarrassing himself here, I think. So I think that's one thing that's going on. Now, obviously, Ehrman, just as an example, and he's he's very uh, brilliant. Or another one, Maurice Casey, who's, I think, 
about to crucify me and Earl Doherty and others in a book on uh, the Christ myth theory he's uh, putting out. This guy is incredibly brilliant. I love his work on on many aspects of the New Testament, but I just think he's kind of uh, stuck in a traditional paradigm. I wouldn't say that if I didn't feel the that his criticisms are... Uh, Let's see, I'm losing track of this. I wouldn't say that I wouldn't offer that theory about it if I saw the cogency of his criticisms, but I don't. And so then I have to say, why is such a brilliant scholar uh, taking this approach? And I'm kind of assuming it's it's just tradition, but who knows? Ultimately, it doesn't matter. You just need to evaluate anybody's work on on its own merits. And then come back to we're ta- I was talking about skepticism at the beginning. Doesn't it come back to each of us has a bias and we need to take that into account and try to basically uh, bring it under control. And whenever we approach a topic, try to take steps to remove our bias from our final conclusion, our considerations. That's right. And it's right whether you're uh, on the conservative or the liberal, the believing or the skeptical side, though there is a built in danger for faith dogmatists, apologists, because they have begun to use probabilistic reasoning to try to show that their beliefs are reasonable. And that can be fatal because once it becomes uh, uh, theoretically doubtful, it's hard to just shut that off when you go back to church and just believe it by faith. You, you, you've kind of given that up. And uh, so there's a sort of a Trojan horse thing going on there. But yeah, I'm the first to ask uh, skeptics and unbelievers, why and how did you come to your conclusion? Were you just sick of being confined by this religion, or did you really decide you think it's not true? Because uh, it's important to have a clean conscience on this. Yeah, as opposed to you know, like some people, it's also just about aggression. Uh, they mm. they uh, they hear some of it's like giving them ammo when you're being critical, and you present to them the doubts, the reasonable doubts, and the holes in the in the evidence. They'll just take it as evident or as ammunition. Uh, that's I think probably more so uh, in the atheist community. I've heard people being like that than specifically the skeptics community. But um, yeah, uh, I want to give you credit as well for always. Uh, you know, I think you put up also a good example for how to treat your opponents as opposed to enemies. <laughs> I've heard mm-hmm. people with different opi- different opinions from people, and they're not always uh, like you. You just uh, the way you treated uh, Bart Ehrman, you gave him credit for being brilliant and you specify it was a disagreement with his conclusions. Uh, a lot of people don't bother to do that. Ad hominem attacks, or like you say, they'll they'll point to anything they can about their academic standing or anything like that rather than the argument at hand. Yeah, I to tell you the truth, that still amazes me. That isn't it obvious that that mudslinging just is is irrelevant? I I don't see how it like Earl Doherty. Oh, he's not a professionally trained scholar. Who cares? Uh, he published his own book. Yes, yeah, so did David Hume. Uh, it just doesn't. I mean, your credentials or the cogency of what you say. Uh, how does? And I'm sure all these guys know that. If you ask them, isn't that true? They they'd say, well, uh, yes, it is, but it does. Doesn't seem to stop him from uh, maligning him the next time. That that is inexplicable to me. Yeah, it's really strange. But I guess that's what we get back with. They have a that's the human bias. It's human nature. You want to have, you know, like a maybe a narrative. 
uh, there are good guys and bad guys, or <laughs> this this is the cause we're championing. So anyone that gets in the way needs to be crushed. Just like a duality yeah. with anything. You know, there's duality between a lot of things that humans deal with on a day-to-day basis. Men and women, conflict versus resolution. I mean, we always try and put things into one of two camps, is my opinion, anyway. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, look at the uh, political mudslinging that's going on. Uh, they often point out how back in the 80s you had uh, a real collegial spirit between uh, Reagan and Tip O'Neill, for example, diametrically opposed on many issues, but they could leave it at the office and go out and have a drink together afterward, whereas now it's just like uh, the, the Hatfields and the McCoys or, or on uh, Facebook when somebody weighs in on some political issue and you disagree, you're just evil. And uh, it's so depressing. I just can't stand that. That's with us or against us type of thing. Yeah. Mm. Intolerance. Uh, yeah, that's another thing, too. You, uh, on your show, you intentionally try not to get sidetracked too much into politics or whatnot. But I have noticed that some of your political views would not uh, be what... Hold on, it's not part of the reigning agenda in the atheist community. <laughs> oh, you, you ain't kidding there. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think that's healthy. I think that's good for... I feel more comfortable that we have different points of view rather than everyone basically nodding their head to supposedly some kind of, I don't know, uh, hegemony in the yeah, Is it awkward view? that I'm nodding my head right now? Yeah, yeah. He's, he's nodding his head to a lot of this. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that is really true. And again, it's like a plausibility structure thing where uh, we're the in-group and you're the out-group. And how do I know we're right? Well, because I'm in the in-group. Uh, you're wrong because you're not in it. Like in the Gospel of John, uh, the reason you don't hear my voice is you're not part of my flock. And uh, that's uh, I, I just think that there, it's, there are certain habits of mind that uh, that might incline one to liberalism intellectually and politically. But uh, to me, it seems more consistent to apply the same skepticism of dogma to uh, political dogma, because it seems very clear to me that like when you hear spin doctors on different pundit talk shows, I recognize immediately the voice of uh, of apologists, that uh, they're, they're uh, using talking points just like apologists for the resurrection or whatever. Generation after generation use the same tired, bogus arguments. The arguments have become as much a cherished creed as the creed they're trying to defend with them. And it seems very, I, I think I can smell it, by now this kind of spin uh, and uh, on behalf of dogma. And I, I don't, uh, to, to me, I mean, personally, from my worm's eye view, I see more of that going on with uh, uh, liberal progressives. Uh, I mean, I may not be seeing the thing right. I don't know. But I, I it's my skepticism that leads to both my views vis-a-vis -vis religion and politics. Yeah, well, I went from being conservative in my younger days to being liberal in my university days, and now I take it like you, I think what you're getting at. I take it a case by case basis. Yeah, that's how I'm going to take each situation. And you're right. I think I think maybe what makes it seem worse for the left rather than the right, so to speak, is the left really believes that they are overcoming the ignorance of the right. Right, the right thinks they're on a moral crusade in a sense of. Uh, you know, the Bible or traditional values. 
I don't think the left has really become aware of the fact that they're on a moral crusade as well. Oh, yeah. This uh, tiring duck dynasty thing, or as I like to call it, the hip <laughs> dynasty, dynasty debate. Uh, it's obvious that this guy, uh, what's his name, Robertson or Robinson or something, uh, looks like he's from ZZ Top, all of them do. Uh, <laughs> it's obvious he is uh, – I mean, I don't agree with what he said, if I even understand it right, but it's the reaction to this guy is that he is a heretic who must be silenced. And you only think that way if you have an authoritarian approach uh, that does his own outlook uh, to hell with pluralism and tolerance. We don't have time for that. We've got to smash dissent down with the iron fist of orthodoxy. And uh, that's always been the case on the left as well as the right. I mean, after all, the fascists and the Nazis were uh, were leftists. They were all socialists of one kind or another. We tend to think of them as the ultimate rightists, but they weren't. Uh, but I mean, that doesn't describe a lot of the great liberals in American history. Uh, but you you can have either side go bad once they embrace an authoritarian yeah. "we're right and you're going to hell" uh, attitude. Yeah. I um I just had a question on that actually since you brought it up. See, I've, I've been having um, a fairly lengthy discussion on uh, Facebook Facebook message board about this whole uh, Robertson discussion. And it's my take that um, a lot of people who are feeling bad for him say that his freedom of speech has been infringed against. And my personal opinion was that he had every right to say what he did. Nobody told him he couldn't say it. Nobody stopped him from saying it. But freedom of speech is distinct and different from freedom from consequences. Yeah, that's true. Plus, it's just a policy decision from the the uh, network. Uh, I I don't see what the big deal is there. I guess what the only thing that rubs me the wrong way is the uh, the uh, attitude of those who are condemning the guy. It sounds to me as if he's he's a heretic who must be silenced somehow. That that's I can I would rather see a debate over the issues such as you just framed them. But uh, it's this this intolerant, uh, jack-booted, politically correct thing that I can't uh, stomach. Yeah. I don't care what the guy thinks. I mean, it's it, who really cares uh, – that uh, I mean, it, you've got the modern equivalent of hee-haw on that show. Uh, do you really think anyone should take seriously uh, the opinions of, of uh, Junior Samples or Jed Clampett? I mean, the whole thing's a freak show anyway. That's the whole point. Well, yeah. Plus, he was. I, I think the GQ kind of set him up for for that knockdown, right? Because they 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 sell more magazines if controversy is stirred up over an issue that they printed with something he said that's controversial. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I just tossed up on Facebook that day. Uh, well, maybe it was a couple of days after people were going on about it. My, my comment was, are you really surprised? Really? I was like, no, you're not surprised. Not really. <laughs> yeah. Come on. Yeah. They're just hoping somebody like him would say something like this. And, and of course they know that that's their opinion. I, what's the big deal? I think therefore it's, it's an opportunity to bash uh, fundamentalists and traditional views. I hold many uh, traditional values, though uh, opposition to homosexuality is not one of them. I'm pro-gay, uh, like you said, issue by issue. Yeah. Uh, but um, the the thing that I find disturbing is that this is the number one cable show. 
Uh, I <laughs> that uh, that amazes me. Oh, oh. sorry. Uh, okay. You know, like I've I've had similar critiques of other of other networks. Uh, I don't know if it's the same down in the states, but up here in Canada, there's uh, the History Network, and they play this show called Ancient Aliens on the History Network, and that's yeah, hard same here, yeah. Swallow. Like, uh, I don't know, people like ridiculous sideshows, and that's what this is, and, you know, to get back to the point about what he said, me, my particular personal view is that no speech should be infringed against. I think everyone should be able to say anything they want, no matter how asinine it is, because if you drive that underground, if you make it illegal or wrong to say to the point that nobody's saying anything, then no debate, no discourse happens. That's right, and that's what, uh, though legally that's not, uh, free speech is not being suppressed, there is this this, uh, general honor-shame thing where you're made to feel you dare not say certain things uh, to, to the point where it's really bizarre, like when Katy Perry had a Japanese kimono on in some uh, performance, there were people s- screaming that she was some kind of racist or, <laughs> I guess, colonial exploiter. Are you insane? I mean, it's getting <laughs> to the point where you're not even going to be able to say Japanese or African or Canadian or anything else because only the people that live there can speak it. Yeah. They they like the N-word, right? Now they can say it, but you can't. And so they have a copyright on the mere mention of their ethnicity. And if you allow that there is such a thing as ethnicity, you're in the Ku Klux Klan. It's it's insane. Well, you know, it, it, I figure it'll get a little worse before it gets better. But pretty soon I'm thinking that you won't be able to refer to any ethnicity that ends in I-A-N. <laughs> yeah. Mm. <laughs> but only those. The rest is free. <laughs> the, the rest of you are Hmm. Yeah, I and I um, I've heard things where people are starting to try to uh, crack down on humor. Humor, in particular, I think is an important area that we try not to become. We should not try to legally legislate humor <laughs> too much. Yeah, okay, w- within reason, but uh, like only the most extreme cases really should set off the red alert. Humor sh- has never really fit into the PC camp. It's not the way it works. You can always tell something uh, significant about someone who has no sense of humor, (laughs) especially poking fun at themselves. This is why I uh, always am tickled to see – well, in the old days, I wouldn't watch Saturday Night Live today if you paid me. But in the old days, uh, whenever you would see people I can't stand otherwise, like Al Gore or Al Sharpton, on the show poking fun at themselves, I don't care what else they think. That that's a good guy. I, I feel like that humanizes them yeah. and shows that they're not villains, no matter how stupid what else they may have to say is. Yeah, it's almost like an acknowledgement of their imperfections, their limitations. Yeah, yeah. So I, I do have a question for you. I'm just I'm just curious about your sense in this because you've been talking about dogmatism. And my question to you is, amongst the atheist community, do you think that part of the problem why some of the atheist community hold so strongly to views that can be, that should be, in any rational discussion, open to that discussion, uh, do you think that it's just human nature that we seek consensus with large groups? 
Oh, yeah, we, we feel secure that way. The old plausibility structure thing again. We'd, we feel uh, more at ease with uh, either the majority or at least a good group of people that we can subsume ourselves under, as uh, Eric Hoffer says in The True Believer. And uh, that um, that makes it very easy to just feel with certainty that you're right, whether you're a Baptist fundamentalist or a, an atheist. And I, I don't mean to say that anyone is uh, actually letting that substitute for argument, uh, but uh, because, you know, often these people do have good, intricate, uh, compelling arguments, uh, I think, especially on the, the atheist side. Uh, but uh, you do have to wonder about the militancy. That that disturbs me a bit because I feel like, you know, get a life. Uh, what, what is the, uh, like, I don't understand the, uh, the crusading evangelistic approach of some of the new atheists uh, in that, uh, like, I just can't accept what Sam Harris says about uh, if you allow middle-of-the-road religiosity as harmless, you're really aiding and comforting the Taliban. I, that just, I know way too many harmless religious people to think that makes any sense at all. Though I do agree with uh, Sam Harris that that so many people's beliefs are utterly without foundation that you uh, you've got to respect them but there's no need to respect what they think yeah but why go try to convert them all i don't see how that's anybody's business resistance is futile your life as it has been is over from this time forward you will service us. Yeah, I, I think that uh, when I first uh, really acknowledged that I was I was an atheist and I started really getting involved, reading up on it, kind of sharpening my intellect on these issues that I had kind of shied away from, there was a period when I was pretty aggressive. <laughs> Inevitably, yeah. Yeah, but uh, eventually the way, the way that I put it for myself is I say there's a time and a place. Right? Yeah. So the example I always use that everyone understands, at least everyone I've met so far, is that a bad place or an unacceptable place to start telling people that there is nothing after death would be at a funeral. <laughs> oh, boy. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's uh, just uh, why. I mean, this would be on the same level as the most obnoxious fundamentalist, which is why I called some of these atheists Westboro atheists. Uh, they're, they're just making an intolerable a spectacle and nuisance of themselves and bringing their own cause into terrible discredit. Uh, aren't you done with witnessing and, and making an obnoxious uh, pest of yourself? W wasn't that one of the reasons to get out of fundamentalism and now you're doing the same thing? Uh, you got to get out of this cultic mindset and, uh, and, uh, or, or why do you even bother? You, you haven't really changed. Do you think that it's possible though that, um, See, I've always thought that when uh, a person comes out of a fundamentalist religion, they had they had for at least a period of their life a fairly thick armor of faith. Mm -hmm. And when they finally give up that faith, they have to replace it with an equally thick armor of something else, whether it's rationalism or skepticism or just militant atheism. So it's kind of like they 
they have to balance what they lost with something equal in what they what they get out of what they've switched to. Yes, I think that's exactly right. The pendulum is not going to settle down in the middle at the first time. And uh, and you're right, you have a need, there's a vacuum, and uh, the temptation is to fill it. Yeah, I, I have a lot of understanding and sympathy for that, uh, for people in that position, but I would hope they'd eventually look forward to settling uh, down in the middle and, and not being possessed by the issues anymore, because it's the same issues. They, it's like, I like to say, two teams in a stadium and sometimes people will switch teams but stay in the same uh, game when really they yeah. ought to just leave the stadium for their own good yeah find, find a new game <laughs> yeah yeah uh, there are things where I think you do have to keep an eye open and fight on certain issues, like trying to get creationism taught in public yeah. school, for instance. But that's pretty manageable. Not all fundamentalists do that. And when they do, you can fight it on a local level. And it's been done pretty successfully. Uh, if you think about the militant uh, Islamist radicals, apologetics and counter-apologetics means nothing there. You're dealing with insane savages and you have to take much yeah. sterner me measures. And that's just not the case with, uh, with any kind of, uh, with any other religion that I know of. Yeah. Yeah. For, for the way I, the way I tackle the issue of going overboard, I guess, with the aggression is this is again, uh, with, uh, kind of going back to skepticism and your own biases, like why you're doing things. So mm -hmm. when I was a fundamentalist uh, evangelical and I would go after people, I had a part of me that truly believed everything. But there was always that one part that knew it didn't really make sense. <laughs> mm -hmm. So one of the reasons for going to convert other people is to hear yourself say it and to hear the feedback of anyone you convert. You're That's kind of, right. You're kind of using them as kind of a fill-in for your own doubts. If if you can convince them you're right, then you must be right. Exactly, yeah. And and even if you don't, even though they say, get out of here, you nut. Well, you've been persecuted for Christ, so you're living out the, the New Testament pattern, so you can't really lose either way. But there's a mirror with any, like you say, it's not just religion. Ideology is the word I use, and... So uh, somebody who's an atheist, their facts might be correct, but if they are, like you say, militant and going after people no matter what the time, no matter what the place, and they don't care about the person in front of them, they're so aggressive, then I, I've tried to explain this. It's kind of the same thing. You are using that person as a doubt of your own insecurities, and by attacking them, you're kind of using them as a substitute. You should have more confidence in your own principles and what you've come to understand then it, I think that automatically starts subsiding some of the aggression. Yeah, that's very wise. I agree. I look at religious faith almost like a, like a if I'm using the term correctly, like a non-Newtonian fluid. You know? <laughs> no, it's true, though. Like if, you, if, if you go aggressively at it, you're just going to hit a solid wall. But if you reach in slowly and try and, oh, I see. and you know, just be subtle and gentle with it, you will get a lot further... Um, uh, for the listeners that will eventually hear this, hopefully they know what a non-Newtonian fluid is. I'm sure many <laughs> of them will, but, you know, for for me, like, I mean, just to be honest, even me at this age, I'm, I'm a little bit more aggressive than Corey was initially, and um, 
just recently, I was sitting at my, like, I'm, I've gone back to school, I'm back in college, and mm-hmm. the discuss, discussion came up about atheism being a religion. And I'll admit, I was not on my game that day. I was so taken aback by being in a, in a, in a school and hearing that, that I just took the nuh-uh approach. And <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't my shining moment. But what do you think is the best tool that skeptics or atheists can use to avoid dogmatism? Well, I uh, think the best approach is to just uh, indicate to people, well, you may think what you wish, but uh, let me just explain how I came to uh, find the, the approach you're now taking and that I used to wanting. Uh, I, uh, I had, uh, I loved this, this belief and uh, wanted to defend it, but I'm afraid I was unable to do it. This is why, I mean, you, you may think nothing of this. It may not bother you at all, but uh, let me account for, for the approach I now take there. If you're not saying, look, I'm going to beat you. Let me show why you are wrong. Uh, you're not challenging them and they're not going to get defensive. If they're listening to you and uh, you're saying, yeah, I, I wish I, I wished I could believe that, but I just couldn't carry it through. That's going to make them think uh, in a way that a direct challenge would not. And and I know it sounds like I'm saying, well, this is a sneaky way to get them to abandon their faith. But no, I want to take that consistently. I don't care if they abandon it or not. But if, again, I need to account for where I have wound up, I'm happy to do it and let them do with it as they will. At least I'm not going to slap them in the face and, and get in a fight, which is not going to leave them open. True enough. One of the other factors that I think plays into why there are so many, or there's a perception of being so many aggressive non-believers, atheists, skeptics, is demographically um, and and geographically we are separated. It's only with the advent and the use of the internet that a large collection of us can really come together. But individually in our towns and counties and provinces or states, there, there doesn't tend to be a great number of us. So I wonder, because we tend to be surrounded by the opposition more so in in our certain localities, that that creates this need to be aggressively defensive of our positions. That's right. That's the classic um, defensiveness of sectarians, when uh, even if you just like... Uh, splitting off from a major denomination and uh, starting some new, more pure version of it as you view it. Now you you don't fit in with a larger group anymore, and so there's more pressure on you. It's like you're in a submarine underwater. The water pressure is much greater than if you were obviously on the, the let's say the external pressure is much greater than if you were up in the open air. So you got to really brace those walls, and uh, zeal is the way to do that, and engagement with the uh, the hostile forces without. But that again is basically social psychology, and it is. Natural natural it's part of human nature but as you wisely said you you do have to look back uh, you have to look in the mirror and say well why am i so uh militant or whatever am i being insecure and you know what do i do about that well i would think there would be a certain level of natural insecurity especially in the uh, early portion of of falling out of belief especially if you're surrounded by family or your community that is still religious and trying to 
gets you back on the bandwagon, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's quite uh, uh, quite helpful to try to be able to to counterbalance that pressure. That's uh, that's no cheat. I mean, that's uh, just to keep your head clear. You need to do that. So, my question to you then would be: Do you think that the use of the internet is a key component that will eventually soften hardline atheism, or do you think it is a uh, vehicle to uh, make it more rigid? I don't know. I, I couldn't say, but the fact that people like Josh McDowell and others are saying, boy, the internet is really hurting us. People are getting an unfiltered earful and even seeking out more of all this skeptical atheist so-and-so. Uh, that may be emboldening uh, people on our side to say, okay, we got them on the run now. And uh, I, I wouldn't condemn that. I don't think it's uh, somehow immoral for, for them to go after theism. I guess I'm just thinking, look at the possible ironies of this uh, in terms of the effect on others. Are you just making atheism loathsome in their eyes, like by this uh, billboard, Who Needs Jesus at Christmas? Who, who's going to be prompted to consider atheism from that? It's just a slap in the face. And uh, it, it's... Uh, and you have to wonder, but uh, what the heck? It's ultimately not doing anybody har any harm to have the gauntlet cast down. It might turn off some people. So I don't want to sound like too condemnatory of militant atheism. I just think it's uh, it, it may be counterproductive. So I don't know which way it's going to go with the, the Internet, but it might just add fuel to the fire. And what the heck? I'm. I don't think that'd be a bad thing. <laughs> right. Several months ago, I uh, I was making videos before I started the podcast, and then I realized how much more work they were. <laughs> <laughs> but one of the ones that I did was a quick response to uh, an atheist that I actually really enjoy. He goes by the name Mr. Deity. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, mm -hmm. and he made one that was meant to be humorous but really toxic about uh, making it very clear that he was calling on atheist skeptics to say religious skeptics are not real skeptics. It was very clear that that was the, the premise of the video. And um, it was just aggressive and toxic enough that I made a response. I went through and I just stopped the video or put up in words what fallacy he was using it at every given point. Hmm. Yeah, and uh, a lot of people got upset with me for it, including my local skeptics group that didn't understand why I was being so upset about it. And I was trying to bring across the difference that I don't think there's anything productive in the video. He's not telling any atheists anything they don't already think, if they think it. <laughs> mm -hmm. All he's going to do is seek to separate people who still have a theistic view on many, on, you know, on certain issues, but are skeptical on some issues that they are willing to discuss. Uh, and so mm -hmm. I, I felt like, what's the point if these people are willing to come in and talk about the vaccinations and, and communicate that to their community along with a whole host of other things, like getting uh, secular values into the government, why would we want to force these people out if they're not willing to give up their God? It just seems, um, like you say, unproductive. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is like a, an enticing irony to say, doesn't your... To, to believers in religion who are skeptical of other things, doesn't it occur to you that you might be more consistent to turn the shine the light on these convictions too? But I have to to think that uh, 
it, it would be better just to have a friendly discussion sometime in a skeptics group uh, and uh, just to exchange opinions. If somebody can say, well, here's why I think that uh, this is above reproach, uh, but not this, or I think there really is reason to believe this, but not that. Okay. I mean, if it, just raising the issue is probably enough. You, but as you say, putting it that way is saying, look, get out of here. It reminds me of when uh, my mother-in-law was a real radically conservative, conservative Episcopalian and all the stuff about gay ordination. And she was just always on fire about that. And she would uh, follow these ultra-conservative Episcopalian websites and the the vituperation, the vitriol in these things, basically they were saying, well, you liberals and you gays in the church, why don't you just get out of here and go to hell where you belong? I thought somebody's, uh, in the words of one of my favorite theologians, they've uh, made a wrong point in Albuquerque. Uh, <laughs> it, if, if you've come to this point, something is drastically wrong. Uh, why just tell people to go to hell? I mean, is are there is their presence that intolerable? Uh, I I think you're right. There's just no. I haven't heard what Mr. Deity said on it, but I mean the you know the way the impression you got. I think also it's just needless antagonism. Yeah, and I don't think a lot of people realize just how many religious people are, you know are out there when you need their cooperation on so many issues. Uh, there is a very it's very on a functional level. It's just really self-defeating. Like you can't just eliminate them and then do everything you want. Your numbers shrink so drastically. Mm. But but there are you know there are people out there who are atheists now who do go around. Um, as some people told me, they do go around and say, "Well, the reason I gave up my faith is because someone attacked me with hmm. you know with vitriol, and that shocked me out of it. It forced me to reconsider it. But I try to tell them that is the exception, not the rule." <laughs> Because hmm. usually when you attack someone, they recede deeper into what they know. You know, they go back into their community or they go back into their beliefs. That's my experience. Uh, hmm. I, I did not challenge my beliefs because someone attacked me. I challenged them because someone piqued my curiosity. And uh, unbeknownst to our religious leaders, they had taught me that I should always seek the truth. And I mistakenly thought that God and the truth were the same thing. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think with these people, uh, apologists, uh, God has become the moral equivalent of truth, uh, to, to borrow something, I think, from William James, uh, that uh, some moral endeavor could be the uh, the moral equivalent of, of war, uh, so onward Christian soldiers and that kind of thing. Well, uh, for apologists, uh, the, the Christianity is the moral equivalent of truth, but that means it isn't necessarily the truth. You're just putting that halo around it, and uh, and so the truth becomes uh, less important than defending the party line. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth. You can't handle the truth. I'm not sure how long we have you today. Uh, well, well, I have you. I want to ask. If you have any advice for anyone who basically has very little knowledge of the Bible, um, either they you know grew up like I did and they have kind of been told what the Bible means, but they don't really understand it, or even people who don't have a really religious background, what would be a good overall strategy for these people to start their walk towards having a critical understanding of what this book is or these books are? Almost any 
study Bible with uh, the introductions to Old and New Testaments and then the individual books would be a good place to start. Like with the new RSV, uh, Revised Standard Version, I don't really like that translation, and I think that uh, often the, the commentary is a little too conservative, but that wouldn't really matter. It's it's an initiation into uh, con- uh, critical uh, approaches to the Bible. Uh, who wrote what? Uh, when was it written? Is it consistent? And so forth. Uh, that wouldn't be a bad idea. That at least shows that it's not just a magic book all on the same level and uh, and uh, dropped out of heaven by God. And uh, any books on Old or New Testament introduction, I would hope people would read more than one because there are many different views on that. But uh, that might not be a bad uh, idea. It's just that if you get like the, let's say the Ryrie Study Bible done by Charles Ryrie at Dallas Seminary, you're just going to get more fundamentalism. And uh, I, I think that masks the real issues about the, the the historical background of the Bible. It's still all theology. So, um, oh boy. Oh. Is a big question? <laughs> yeah, you wouldn't think it would be. There are some books that if they weren't a bit out of date, I'd like to to recommend like Edgar J. Goodspeed's How Came the Bible. That goes over um, the uh, the historical background of the whole canon formation as well as the, the different uh, types of literature and all that. But it's kind of outdated. He was writing decades ago. But that sort of a book is uh, is handy. I'm, I'm just not as familiar with modern ones uh, that uh, say that. But books that are called something like Intro to New Testament or Intro to the Bible or something probably wouldn't be a bad idea. Um, hmm. Strangely enough, that is a toughie. Uh, I, I like to be uh, self-serving and suggest people take a look at my uh, pre-Nicene New Testament or the uh, the new smaller version of it that's about to come out, the, the Human Bible New Testament which uh, has the my translation of the 27 books plus introductory essays about all of them. But there again, I, I'm taking a really far out radical view that most people would think uh, certifiably insane. So I don't know if people should start with that or not. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> on, on that note, um, the obviously the one that's most contentious of, of issues, it always comes back to whether Jesus was a historical person. It's the argument these days doesn't even seem to be most debated whether he was God. It's whether he was a historical person. And if I if I understand correctly, um, your view is not he was not a historical person. Your view is there is a lack of evidence demonstrating he was a historical person. Is that right? Yeah, the, I think the burden of proof lies on the one who would say that um, this seemingly mythical character was not merely mythical. And uh, I, I, do, I have not yet seen that burden borne to my satisfaction. So I tend to think it's more likely there was no historical Jesus, but I, I try to nuance it that way. It's not a dogma or even a belief with me. It's just the hypothesis I find most likely. So we don't know 
know that there was no Jesus or anything like that. And there are other plausible hypotheses like the, the Jesus, the zealot approach, that he was a some kind of freedom fighter or subversive against Rome. Yeah, there yeah. have been very good cases made for that. In fact, I think if there was a historical Jesus, that would be uh, he. Uh, but I have problems with that and still think the, the evidence is really non-existent. But, you know, I'm, I'm, maybe I'll change my mind. It would only take somebody discovering an old papyrus letter where someone happened to mention hearing Jesus speak or something. Uh, that, that's probably all it would take, but we don't have even that. Uh, and so uh, I tend to think, well, you know, you got to you got to show me. But so far, it, it hasn't been done, I think. Dr. Bob Price is a Bible scholar that I previously interviewed about the historical Jesus. Today, we're going to talk about his latest book, The Case Against the Case for Christ. I decided, I don't know how wide a distribution I can get for a book, but I at least ought to make some attempts to correct the massive disinformation contained in this thing. Uh, and uh, that's what uh, really moved me to, to do it. There's just such, it's just a deposit of smug apologetics masquerading as historical study. And what gets my goat about this is, uh, not just in this book, but whenever they do it, is not that uh, they're, they're trying to propagate the Christian faith. I'm a student of, of comparative religion. I appreciate and love all the religions. I don't uh, hate any of them. Uh, it'd be uh, unscholarly, unhumanist thing to do. But uh, I do get my back up when people are misrepresenting the facts and uh, about their own religion or others. And I feel like, well, in that case, I ought to enter the ring, and so I did. Well, the first couple chapters in The Case for Christ, Lee Strobel's book, defend the Gospels as generally reliable portraits of the historical Jesus. What do you think of that claim? It's completely circular, and it's completely deductive. A blessing, a blessing from the Lord. God be praised. Yeah, probably, I'm, I'm assuming part of the difficulty is that each sort of reign of theology within what would become the Christian church had a habit of destroying the stuff before them that they didn't felt conformed. So we don't, mm -hmm. we don't have any of the original texts, possibly for that reason, right? Uh, that's right. We know, for instance, of an Acts of Pilate that uh, made Jesus look bad, and uh, it was suppressed. Uh, we don't know what it said. There are no quotes from it. Uh, it could have been authentic. It could have been, as most assumed, just anti-Christian propaganda. But once Christians were in power, that was that. Uh, and uh, various other gospels and so on were destroyed. But I'm thinking like how occasionally they'll find just a bunch of uh, old papyrus letters in Egypt somewhere, as they've done before, and uh, just letters home to from traveling businessmen and so on, who will mention this or that. If you just had a kind of non-axe grinding um, attestation that somebody had seen the famous Jesus of Nazareth or something, and it didn't appear to be some cooked up hoax thing, 
uh, I would have to say, uh, yeah, all right. Or, or like that James Ossuary thing that turned out to be a fraud. Yeah. Uh, e even there, even if it had been an authentically ancient, it was too ambiguous. But that's the kind of thing I mean. It's it's conceivable you could find some early document that established Jesus as a historical figure. That'd be fine with me. But uh, so far, no evidence is no evidence. With uh, With Paul. What is the difference in our understanding of Paul as opposed to Jesus as a historical person? Like, is there is there more data to support what we know about him or pretty much the same? I think it's it's nearly the same because uh, I am convinced by the Dutch radical critics, so-called Van Manen, Lohman, and various others, uh, Bruno Bauer, uh, that uh, the uh, – Pauline epistles are not written by the same person. They're written from different viewpoints. They're patchwork quilts that have conflicting opposite views one page after another. They've been heavily interpolated, and uh, there's no way of telling uh, if if a historical Paul started this tradition. Like, for instance, with Peter, there's two letters attributed to him in the New Testament, a couple of more outside the New Testament, and various apocalypses and gospels of Peter and so on that uh, no real critic thinks are genuine. Uh, and it shouldn't be surprising if uh, Paul was enough of a big name for whatever reason to have generated a similar amount of stuff that didn't go back to him. And I think the evidence of the, the letters makes it somewhat unlikely that they do go back to a single person. The, there are mentions of Simon Magus in uh, Josephus in connection with some of the people that Paul meets in the book of Acts. Uh, and there are discussions of Simon Magus and Irenaeus and others that sound a lot like Paul. So I tend to go along with Hermann Dettering, uh, who argues that uh, the historical Paul was Simon Magus and uh, that uh, Paul is more of a title. Uh, and it has different significance depending on which lang what language you look at and so on. And uh, that uh, the Pauline epistles began to be written by Marcion, who would have written most of Galatians and possibly an earlier version of Ephesians, and that other Marcionites and Gnostics and eventually Catholics were adding to these documents. So uh, in a sense, there is a basis for, for Paul, but it would be kind of like people that ask, was there a real King Arthur? Uh, well, there may have been some British chieftain in the 6th century who whose adventures gave rise to this, but we don't really know. Uh, or was there a real Merlin? Well, there was some Welsh poet named Myrden. He, he could have become Merlin. Does that mean there really was a Merlin the magician, or are we just talking about an antecedent to, to yeah. one? And so in the same way, was there really an Apostle Paul, or is this possibly a largely fictional character, though glancingly based on real historical figures. Uh, and, and like when you look at the book of Acts, the stories of Paul's conversion and his preaching seem to be heavily based on 2nd Maccabees and the Bacchae of Euripides. It, it seems to be all literary in origin, not, not historical. So I really think we're stuck with uh, almost blanket agnosticism about all these characters. Correct me if I'm wrong, but you mentioned Marcion, and that's that's something that I've looked a little bit into. Now, wasn't he actually forcibly removed from the Orthodox Church 
Um, and then basically, it was almost his writings that kind of prompted the, the, the writing of the Gospels themselves, or like the Council of Nicaea that followed. That's how I seem to have recalled it. I'm, I'm a couple of years away from when I last read up on him. Well, uh, Marcion would have been uh, a couple of centuries before Nicaea, mm -hmm. and Christian doctrine was sufficiently in flux that, uh, for instance, in the late first, early second century, you have the Shepherd of Hermas, an apocalypse written by uh, a, a church elder in Rome that has views that would shortly be considered heretical, a kind of an adoptionist Christology and so forth. Uh, or Valentinus was known in Rome and some liked his Gnostic views. Marcion went to Rome to... Uh, offer himself as a candidate for Bishop of Rome, and uh, he set forth his views, and they decided, uh, plus he brought a big monetary contribution, they uh, heard him out and couldn't buy what he said, the rejection of the Old Testament and all that, and then gave him the, the donation back to keep things straight, and he started his own church. So yet, they considered him a heretic, but it, it was... Uh, it's not like a Jehovah's Witness throwing his hat in the ring to become the next pope. Uh, there, there, there was still a lot of diversity there. It was thinkable that, that he could become the Bishop of Rome, though it didn't work out. And uh, once he started his church, the, uh, it, it grew like wildfire all over the empire. And Marcionites, if not Marcion himself, it's a little hard to tell, came up with the first New Testament because Marcion said that the Old Testament was the revelation of the Creator God, not the Father of Jesus Christ, who were different deities. And so he said uh, the Old Testament, is nothing all that wrong with it, but uh, it really isn't a Christian book. Let's leave it to Jews. Uh, and, uh, and so Marcionites, or Marcion, decided we do need a scripture, though. What say we uh, use the gospel, the gospel of the Lord, which looks like an earlier, shorter version of our Luke, and uh, the ten epistles of Paul, uh, and uh, that uh, minus the pastorals, which hadn't been written yet. They were written as a counterblast to Marcion. And uh, once this uh, this book called the the Evangelion and the Apostolicon, the book of the gospel, the book of the apostle, once this... Uh, became very popular, the Catholics thought it was like Sputnik being launched. They said, hey, this this isn't bad. we got to have our own version of this. And so they seem to have uh, decided to uh, pad out the Marcionite scripture and uh, to, to bring in three other gospels to add to uh, to his gospel to make it Luke's gospel, to write the book of Acts, to honor the other apostles, because Marcion had repudiated all of them. Paul was the only one that understood Jesus, he thought, and then various other works in there. And uh, this became the 27-book New Testament, I think, already in the, in the middle of the second century, though it was another two centuries before it became official. But th that edition was out there circulating. And finally, St. Athanasius, who was one of the biggies at the Council of Nicaea, declared that, uh, okay, this is it. No more, uh, no more gospels and stuff where you ought to 
burn those, which is why we have the Nag Hammadi Gnostic texts. They got a copy of that encyclical and said, well, let's say let's bury them. At least somebody may one day be able to read them. These guys were Christian monks who were reading all this Gnostic stuff. Uh, it shows how how mixed and syncretistic it was. But yeah, Marcion, or at least his followers, were the first ones to come up with a New Testament instead of an old. Uh, and then Catholics decided, well, let's keep the Old Testament, add to their, uh, their scripture, and make it into a New Testament. So he was enormously uh, influential in, in the evolution of even mainstream Christianity. Yeah. Well, that's that, that's, and I'm sorry for my my not remembering it completely. Like I said, it's been a number of years, but uh, I, I I do recall like that that Marcion was almost a catalyst for for the the them coming together and trying to create a more complete their own complete book or their own co complete collection of the the Christian stories. And what I find... Oh, yeah, you're totally right. Not even almost. I mean, it's very clear he was the catalyst, yeah. But what I find interesting about that is that one of the main arguments that, that um, I, even I have used is uh, against believers is, look how horrible um, a deity the Old Testament God is, and then all of a sudden he goes through this personality shift where he becomes this all-loving, benevolent deity later on. And Marcion, it almost seems like he wanted to, to divorce the two gods from one another and make them distinct deities. Am I correct in that? Oh, yeah, that's exactly what happened. And the Gospels do have hellfire, which never appears in the Old Testament. But it's interesting that the epistles do not, not even the pastoral epistles, no matter who wrote them, there's never any mention of anybody going to hell. Uh, in the Pauline material, so-called, it just speaks of the righteous rising from the dead and the wicked not. Uh, it's, there's nothing about him checking into the inferno or something, and uh, so that kind of fits the uh, the Marcionite approach to to God, a more benevolent uh, God. Now, I'm 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 not entirely certain if this is correct, but I seem to recall from from what I know of, of Marcion that he he declared or believed that Jesus was almost like a a God of forgiveness or justice, whereas. The Old Testament God was like a, a, a Jewish war god or something more akin to wrath. That's right. He viewed uh, Jehovah as a kind of uh, oriental despot who dispensed rough justice. It's not like he viewed him as a villain exactly, uh, but uh, the kind of, uh, just like, like I admire Napoleon, uh, a, a whole lot of people died uh, because of him, but it wasn't like he was a serial killer. Uh, it's a different sort of a category, and he, yeah. he viewed uh, the Old Testament God that way. He gave the, the laws and all of that and was not very forgiving. And that's why the hitherto unknown father of Jesus, and keep in mind in Luke and Matthew, he says, uh, Heavenly Father, uh, Lord of heaven and earth, uh, you've hidden the truth from the wise and sophisticated and revealed it to the infants. Um, uh, no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son decides to reveal him. W what? 
nobody knows the father i mean that that sounds more marcionite than anything else jesus is is uh revealing a different god and uh, according to marcion what he did was to uh say uh, he he made a deal with jehovah uh jesus death was a ransom buying like manumitting slaves uh buying the freedom of the creatures of of jehovah uh so that they could be adopted as the children of the father of jesus now i that makes a lot of sense of the new test or the pauline references to being adopted uh mm -hmm. adoption as sons and all of that uh well in other words you were somebody else's child but now jesus father is adopting you it also is the only sensible uh, understanding I know of the idea that Jesus' death was somehow redemptive. Well, what does redeeming mean? Well, to buy back the freedom of someone. Uh, and otherwise, you get into all these ridiculous things from the Middle Ages that Jesus' death was somehow uh, a ransom because Satan had kidnapped the human race or God was paying a debt to himself or whatever. <laughs> oh, that's really and, ridiculous. Or why is it that the Pauline epistles always say to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ? Uh, it's, it seems to me it sounds like he's differentiating it from a different God, and I think he is. Uh, who is the God of this world mentioned in Second Corinthians, if not a different God from the Father of Jesus Christ? So there's a lot of Marcionite stuff in there, and he did believe in two gods. And uh, and Jesus was the the son of the uh, the, the hitherto unknown God. Hmm. It almost makes you wonder if Marcion's views had been um, taken more to heart earlier on, if any of these discussions would be happening now. Because one of the biggest problems that I always seem um, to view personally faces theists in the current day and age is this inconsistency between the Old and New Testament. They just don't fit together. It's, it's almost like they, they've got these two heavy lead anvils mashed together with plasticine. Like, like yeah. they, they, it just doesn't work. But Marcion's views, they may have actually worked and been slightly more convincing uh, um, at a casual glance anyway. Yeah, I think uh, that really comes to a head in the stuff in Romans and Galatians about and Colossians about uh, how the law has been superseded, even though in Romans, uh, not that it was bad, don't want to give you that idea, but uh, nonetheless, it was the way in which uh, sin entered my awareness, but that doesn't make it sinful, etc. This seems to me to be a Catholicizing attempt to paper over the more radical Gnostic Marcionite view that still peeks out in the New Testament, that as in Galatians is plainly stated, God did not give the law to Moses. Uh, if it was one guy, he wouldn't have needed a mediator. He'd have just gone to him directly. No, it was the uh, the principalities and powers, the elemental spirits, the angels who gave the law. And uh, so uh, once you get out from under their heel, uh, the law says, simply no longer applies. I think that was the, the original approach. And, uh, and, and trying to paste the two together, like you say, it just uh, does not work. Like Jesus says in the Gospel of Thomas, it's impossible to ride two different horses at the same time. <laughs> it's like trying to paste the video from Brokeback Mountain to the audio for Star Wars, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> <laughs> and even, well, with the New Testament, 
the New Testament, as people get it now, I'm not sure how long it's been this way, but it's even presented in its order as a narrative itself. It's not chronological. It's designed to give you the story in the in the sequence they want you to read it. Yeah, because they they as somebody's noticed that in Paul there is no narrative of an early uh, of an earthly Jesus, uh, but if you read the Gospels first, you'll assume Paul is referring to all that stuff when it's not clear that he is. On on the traditional reading, the Pauline epistles are earlier than the Gospels. That's no longer clear to me. They may be, or they because all this stuff may have been written in the uh, late first early second century. There's, there's clues to that, but at least it seems to represent different types of Christianity, one with an earthly Jesus, one perhaps without one. So you're right, there's huge differences there, even in the New Testament canon. We were talking about uh, Bart Ehrman. Uh, to give him credit, he was one of the people whose work helped me to really understand uh, elements of uh, how... Um, how historians will eliminate certain things or uh, put evidence on the side of it being by a certain author that fall into anything, including the Bible. Mm-hmm. So it was, you know, I found his stuff marvelous, and I was I was surprised when he came up with his book uh, saying Jesus was a historical person. Um, but I, mm. I had a small exchange with him, um, totally unexpectedly on Facebook. Uh, I don't know. I don't remember signing up to be on his on his uh, fan page, or I guess his discussion page. It would be, and uh, all of a sudden, I got on my Facebook news feed. I got a thing that he posted, and it was him talking about one of his readers who, you know, sent him this post, saying that I think it was the Book of Galatians. Uh, I can't remember for sure. I think he was saying the Book of Galatians that Paul talks about going to see James, the brother of Jesus, and this is uh, absolute proof uh, that destroys the myth theory. That Jesus, why would Paul say he was meeting the brother of Jesus unless, you know, this guy was really his brother? And yeah. uh, I was just going to say, I, I think that some of your colorful illustrations have rubbed off on me <laughs> <laughs> because I got, I got a lot of approval from my, my reply. And my reply was, I said, to my understanding, we haven't uh, demonstrated that we really knew who this Paul fellow was as he's discussed as a historical figure either. So have, have, don't we need to first establish how we know he is a solid historical figure before we use him to establish James, the brother of Jesus, and then Jesus himself through him? I said, this is kind of, don't you think this is kind of like uh, saying we know that Rocky was an actual squirrel because Bullwinkle knew him? Yep, yep. <laughs> and we can also say that since he referred to it, uh, therefore we can extrapolate that he was also a flying squirrel. Yeah, right. <laughs> Bravo. And um, uh, Mr. Airman replied back simply that uh, Rocky did not have letters he left behind. That's <laughs> and, just begging the whole question. Yeah, and that's, that's actually exactly what I said. <laughs> and I got twice as many likes from his own followers. As he Whoa. Had. Yeah. So I think that there's a shift that's going on. Mm. Um, and, you know, I was in, in my further answers, I was very clear. I was very respectful to him. I didn't want him to think it was a personal attack or I thought little of him. Um, but I, like, I, like I say, I think that more and more people are feeling less obligation to uphold that traditional view. And they want to really know, like, if I'm going to look into this, how do we know that all of this stuff is established outside of the tradition? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and these questions were raised 
in the 19th century, but uh, never adequately addressed. The closest anybody came was Albert Schweitzer in his book, Paul and his Interpreters. And even there, it's it's not, uh, I mean, it's a good attempt, not just uh, laughing them off like most people do, but uh, the, these, uh, even there was, I think, not a cogent reply. And all of this stuff about Pauline authorship uh, or uh, the existence of Jesus was just uh, given the cold shoulder. Nobody wanted to believe it, so there was no uh, protest against uh, uh, shuttering this stuff. And now that because of the Internet, uh, it's gained a circulation. It's very much like uh, Josh McDowell recently said that uh, there's so much of this atheism and skepticism available uh, you got to drill the faith into the kids um, or you're going to lose them by uh, age 12. Well, in the same way, in the blurb for Maurice Casey's uh, anti-mythicist book that's about to appear, he said that, oh, this had been settled long ago, but due to the Internet, uh, more and more people are uh, bringing up this crazy theory about no historical Jesus. He sounds a lot like McDowell, and uh, there's this worry that the dam is breaking and yeah. uh that the, uh, the, the this is the professional guild trying to maintain their authoritative, like you say, hegemony uh, on these questions. Oh, we're to be listened to, not those people. This mob that knoweth not the law is accursed. Uh, and uh, it's it's ironic, of course. Ultimately, that doesn't make anybody right or wrong, but it's it's a pretty interesting phenomenon. Yeah. And it's, yeah, like you say, it's very interesting to watch how they're responding. I I once wrote into you, you answered a question of mine on your show. This is quite some time ago. Um, it was a question that my brother and I, he's, he's a minister, and he went to a Bible school in, here in Ontario, and it's uh, it was a question about, uh, I guess I had been taken by surprise. He did not realize that the Gospels uh, were not by the people whose names are now attributed to them that they were written anonymously, like they had no name attached. Mm -hmm. um, I told him that, and he told me I was wrong, and this discussion broke out. And I came to realize later I was upset with his school, that they would mm -hmm. not have at least told him about that, that this was a discussion piece rather than filling him with the counter-argument and not telling him, you know, not giving him an objective view on it. Mm. So the question I had asked you was about that, and you answered it, but I guess um, in a more general sense, I don't think most of us understand what kind of, a, of a, a, an environment there is academically where it comes to uh, biblical history, biblical text. Is there still, like, I know there's this traditional view that, that tends to permeate a lot. Uh, is there some kind of uh, pressure, some kind of maybe financial or just, uh, like I say, traditional pressure to conform for the reputation of the institute or for the the field well uh there's i think there is sincerity in a sense that uh the teachers and the sponsors of the school find themselves in a box defined by their religious tradition and so that they want to hold to the party line it's it's become institutional policy and they're simply not able to uh, 
entertain the notion that maybe this stuff is wrong and needs to be reexamined. Just like if you're in a Presbyterian seminary, they're not going to have classes uh, reopening the question of infant baptism or, you know, maybe predestination is a mistake. Uh, uh, no, that's, uh, they, they figure that's been settled long ago. And so if somebody does want to reopen these questions, they'd rather you find someplace else to do it because their institution is really a kind of vocational institution. It's like a medical school for souls. Uh, okay, we've got these techniques, we've got these beliefs about uh, the etiology of diseases. If you want to pursue alternative medicine, go someplace else. We're using proven techniques and teaching people to to use them. Well, in this case, we want people to be pastors of our congregations and teachers of uh, seminarians coming up as they are now. Uh, and so the issue of uh, truth is taken for granted. They're just not really interested in that because they, they think they've got it. And uh, uh, so that that is a great way of killing any kind of inquiry. But it's it's the the practical knowledge of, of a vocational institution. And they're just not interested in uh, the theoretical quest for the truth. No, we've already got it. It's a question of how to apply it. Well, that's, uh, that's not what, uh, that's just not uh, the place to go if you want to learn about the open-ended questions. And if you try to do it there, you're not going to get anywhere. So seminaries then are more like places that reinforce your current norms instead of allowing you a broader view. Yeah, and the ones that have not taken that approach, like Harvard Divinity School, for instance, uh, they uh, have, uh, I think, uh, maybe something like less than 50% of their graduates even go into parish ministry because they, sure enough, there is a broad spectrum of perspectives and pursuits there. And uh, the people that go there for that, they're not interested in uh, serving communion and preaching sermons. That's just not their thing. Our parents, they want the best of stuff for us. But right now they got to do what's right for them. Because it's their time, their time, up there, down here, it's our time, it's our time down here. That's all over the second we ride up Troy's bucket. Yeah, I've also, in particular with people like my, my mother, like most of my family is still uh, conservative and devout, um, I've tried to explain that there's kind of this idea that if people go to university or college, um, that they lose their religion. And it's, it's actually, I think, people on the left and the right end of the political spectrum both seem to think this at large. But I've tried to explain that that's not what the statistics bear out. And I said specifically, what a lot of Christians worry about is uh, when their children go and they start learning about biblical history and the texts, where it comes from, what we know about it how it's used, I said, a lot of them, it challenges their faith, specifically that the book is perfect. Uh, I think, as, as I've heard, a lot of them still have a belief in some type of God, or they still you know, go and participate in the religion, but not all of them become automatic atheists. That's what I've tried to assuage your fears. No, they don't automatically, because my brother studied it, so I guess it depends on the perspective you decide to take while you're doing it. 
Uh, that's true, but often people will become more nuanced and unable to be the black and white yeah. uh, dogmatists from the pulpit or whatever, and uh, they can see that happening. Oh, what do you learn in theological cemetery this semester? <laughs> uh, and uh, you begin to realize if you say the wrong thing, people are going to be suspicious. So there, there is something like that. They don't want you uh, losing your grip on the tradition that they sent you there to uh, learn and preserve. And sure enough, some of these people do eventually start losing it, like the case of poor Mike Lycona, a big-time apologist, a disciple of uh, of uh, Gary Habermas. Uh, he, uh, he uses the same old, uh, I think, bogus arguments for the resurrection. But having met Mike, uh, it's clear to me he is somebody that wants to know the truth, but he's so ensconced in this apologetic paradigm, uh, he doesn't see certain options as, as remotely plausible. And yet, in this massive book on the resurrection, he dealt with the uh, Night of the Living Dead passage in Matthew 27, uh, where the, the uh, many of the saints came alive uh, during the crucifixion and uh, hang around, hung around playing poker uh, until his resurrection, and then they showed themselves in Jerusalem. I mean, and then they drop it. You know, what happened? Uh, this has always been an embarrassment to apologists. And Mike said, well, I'm beginning to think this may be just narrative theology. It didn't exactly happen. Oh, oh boy, did he catch hell for that <laughs> and uh, had to go back with his tail between his legs and say, oh, OK, I admit I was wrong. And in the next edition of the book, I'll cut that. Well, that's I mean, that's what you're you're concerned with, uh, that he, he doesn't believe in the zombie passage, which is not only useless. But embarrassing to to orthodoxy, uh, it, you can't even compromise on that. Uh, that's uh, that's what ha happens with a lot of people. Or Peter Enns, who uh, wrote this book, uh, The Evolution of Adam, or something. He's an evangelical who's teaching at Wester, uh, Westminster Seminary, and in this book he says, ah, there was never any Adam and Eve, oh, but there was a Jesus now, and so forth. <laughs> uh, he got kicked out, and uh, when these people learn too much, uh, they try to stay in, but uh, people can tell, nah, I'm sorry, you've been infected, you're out of here. It almost sounds like the study of, of, of a more broad scope of, of the specific theology of Christianity is more likely to become the death of your particular denominational view than it is the faith itself. Yeah, I just I've heard from people that they still have, uh, you know, like the, you know, like Einstein meant when he talked about God. This, in my opinion, it's so abstract that it doesn't really mean anything, anyways. But just mm -hmm. kind of like there's an order to the universe, or there's a beauty to the universe, um, something to that effect. It does. I'm just. I've tried to tell them it doesn't mean that there's not going to be changes, but the most specific are going to be about the Bible itself. Like I've noticed uh, a number of people saying, let me put it this way. The church that I, I came from, it still has a minister and our old minister is now an assistant minister. Neither of them, I think my assistant minister has one year of Bible school and that's it between the two of them. And <laughs> a couple other people that preach, neither of them have any Bible school. And I think that that is because they really like their beliefs. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. Why muddy the water, they figure. Yeah. If but, you go into it in depth, you're just digging your own grave. Yeah. 
Well, it doesn't mean that they'd lose all of their beliefs, but like you say, some things are going to change. Those are specific to when someone goes, well, the, the uh, God told us in the word of God, and it's perfect, and so we know it's true. And then they would go, okay, well, well, which part of the Bible? Because there's this other part over here, and they seem to contradict each other. And as soon as you say something like that, everyone's alarms go off at the local church. <laughs> yeah, because the Bible has become unusable in the only sense they ever wanted to use it, namely as an infallible answer book. And when you say, well, I still believe it's inspired in some kind of sense, but it isn't that sort of a book. Uh, sorry, uh, that's what we wanted it for. We don't care if you think it's inspired in some sense. But if you say that you can't just believe what it says, then uh, the whole thing's a shot to hell. It's an epistemological watershed there. Uh, we only believe what we do because, as if this were a foundation or a reason, the Bible, which is infallible, says so. Well, how come you believe the Bible's infallible? Well, because it says so. And it's it's totally circular. But <laughs> even if you say, well, I, I still believe the Bible, uh, not the way we need you to. Uh, it, it might be what you say, but really it's unusable to us in that case if it has contradictions and differing opinions among the writer. It might as well be written by Satan in that case. We we just uh, can't deal with that kind of a Bible. This is kind of the purpose of the show is the larger sense of, uh, it's called apostasy now, mm -hmm. but uh, the apostasy part, I'm trying to extend the meaning to challenging all of your assumptions and all the things that we feel ourselves pressured to conform to, kind of encouraging it. And hopefully, uh, actually, uh, eventually when my life's a little more controlled, <laughs> mm. we'll get into maybe talking to some people who actually uh, work around the world and people who really suffer for not conforming. Um, mm. I, I would like to do that eventually. But in the sense, the larger sense, I've tried having this discussion with a number of people that, that to me... Though religion is definitely the most profound and the most uh, widespread, I guess, um, potentially does the most harm in certain ways, ideology is really what it is. It's a, a form of ideology with deep roots and, and more specific functions. What you just said about circular reasoning, that can happen with any uh, ideological mindset a person gets into, where you you know you say, well, the past had this horrible thing done, the present has this one solution, and the future will be glorious. <laughs> yeah, yeah. How, how do you know it? Well, I know because the past had this terrible thing done. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. How do you know? I mean, I, you you ultimately, uh, Tillich said that this was the real existential risk of faith, uh, that uh, you, you, you shouldn't say, okay, I believe so-and-so even when there is sufficient reason to doubt it. That's just intellectual suicide. But in terms of committing yourself to something in the world, what your life is going to be about and the meaning of it, well, you can never be absolutely sure about that, but you have to make uh, a decision and a stand. Uh, you could be wrong, but is it, uh, it'd be better to do that than to just stay on the fence and be uh, nothing your whole life. Yeah. All righty. Well, I'm going to let you go. We've had you for an hour and a half. Thank you. Very, oh, yeah. Wow. Thank you very much for your time coming on the show and talking with us. Yeah, I appreciate oh, it. Oh, it's a thanks pleasure. For, thanks for clearing up some of the some of the questions I had. <laughs> well, it was great to meet you guys. Great to meet you too. Hopefully we'll um, get you back. And definitely uh, when you get a chance, uh, just email me 
a list of any links that you want. I would like to direct people to your to the, your activities and your work. Okay, great. Yeah. Terrific. First, you got to do the truffle shuffle. And there you have it. Another episode in the can on its way to you. Apostasy Now. I want to thank our guest, Dr. Robert M. Price. I want to thank Smashlock for showing up again. Like I say, it's always fun with him. He's got good questions. And I want to thank you for listening. If you've got any questions, if you want to uh, give any feedback, we've got spots on our website. You can do that. And I'm always glad that people tune in. Uh, let your friends know. And uh, I'm going to put the links in the show notes. But if you'd like to know what his address is, uh, you can put in a Google search, uh, Robert M. Price, or you can go to Robert M. Price, all one word, dot mindvendor, all one word, dot com. Uh, you can find all the links there, including for his regular podcast, The Bible Geek, which is a phenomenal fountain of knowledge, which I highly recommend. Uh, until next time, just a little thought I thought I would throw in. It's an interesting thought about how we as atheists or skeptics or just as human beings commit money when we donate money to a cause. I've been following a number of them. On the show, you've heard me talk about uh, my friend Adam Lolliker trying to raise money for a short film so that he can raise awareness about what soldiers go through with post-traumatic stress disorder, especially the ones that have it really badly and end up homeless. Um, he managed to get some thousands of dollars together. I would have liked to see more. And uh, really, I think he, he deserved, and projects like that deserve more. Um, it's not to guilt trip you, but just a thought. There was a very popular atheist site, and I'm going to go on a limb and name it, uh, thegoodatheist.net, who decided, without any biblical, historical uh, knowledge, without going to school for any of this, decided it would be funny to write a book making fun of the Old Testament, which is good. And he decided to have a campaign on Kickstarter, and then he switched it over to uh, Indiegogo to raise money. He asked for 10000 His fans that summer gave him 18 dollars for a funny little book. Adam was not able to raise that much money. Uh, a number of projects I've seen have not been able to raise that much money. And when you look at the results, the would-be author and host of The Good Atheist... Jacob Fortan disappointed, uh, horribly disappointed his fans by not finishing the book as of coming up to Christmas. I think he's still not done writing it. He spent all the money and wanted more money from uh, his listeners in order to finish the book he had already collected money for. Uh, I recommend people, first of all, think about their priorities. It says a lot about who you are and who we are collectively. And second, it makes a difference to the lives of the people around you. And third, you know, places like Indiegogo, they don't have to give you the money back. And so you better think twice about who it is you're giving that money to and what kind of a project. And on that note, I also highly recommend if you enjoy Robert M. Price's knowledge and what he gives, that you consider going there and buying some of his books. They're excellent reads. Uh, and also he has a donation because he spends virtually all of his time now trying to help educate the public. So I highly recommend that. Tune in next time. We'll have another good guest. And uh, have a good holiday. You're going to live with me now. 
I'm gonna take care of you. Because I love you. Oh, I love you, Chuck.